The expectation was that you didn't have ambitions because you were going to get married and have children. But if you persist in working towards what you think is the right thing to do, sometimes you can make real progress. What was required in the human diet, the textbooks of nutrition didn't agree. Boy, if it says vitamins, I'll just get it, particularly if it's, if it's for kids inducing brand loyalty. Coca-Cola is an American icon, and the iconography is extensive. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am honestly, truly in awe of today's guest. Marian Nessel is just so cool. I hope that I am doing everything that she's doing when I'm her age and her work is profound. It has had a huge impact on food politics, our food culture, all the things. It was such an honor to talk with her and we dive deep into so many topics in today's episode. The history of the FDA and food labels, how RDAs were determined, the role of funding, crazy things about the sugar industry, the trans fat ban, and something I really love talking about, which is working as a career woman, a wife, etc., including growing up in her time as well as now. This is just such an incredible, beautiful interview. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes will include links to everything that we talked about, as well as a full transcript. You can find that at melanieavalon.com slash Marion Nestle. That is M-A-R-I-O-N-N-E-S-T-L-E. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And friends, not many people are taking me up on that. You have a very good chance of winning. So definitely check that out. There will also be another giveaway on my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful, fabulous conversation with Marianne Nessel. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a legend, and I do not use that word lightly. So the backstory behind today's conversation, I am good friends with John Levy, who I've had on the show, and he has this thing that he does where he introduces me to the coolest people in the whole world. And so he said that I simply had to have Marianne Nestle on the show because her memoir was coming out. So I was super excited, and I dove deep into her work and friends. This woman, I am so excited to be talking to her today. She has done so much in something I am really, really passionate about, which is basically the role of government and industry, like the commercial food industry and regulation and how all of that affects how food manifests to us as consumers as far as our nutrition choices, the concept of food science versus nutrition science. And she's been doing this for years like years. She actually has 15 books, which is crazy. So I read her new memoir, which came out in 2022 called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And then I went back and read her her big like foundational book, which is called Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. And then I also read Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. But like I said, she has 15 books, so it goes even much farther beyond that. Marion is Paulette Goudard, Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emirata at NYU in the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003, and she retired in September 2017. She's a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. She has honorary degrees 
from multiple universities. She has a PhD in molecular biology and MPH in public health nutrition. But beyond that, like she has done so much in our world. Like, what did Time call you? One of the most influential, I think, Twitter followers or something like that. I don't know if you've used the new like AI chat things. Have you seen those where you like ask it questions? I've looked at it and I uh, did once uh, and I asked it to help me with some homework I was doing. It wasn't very good at it. With some homework? Oh my goodness. That's so funny. But I followed what the New York Times has done where this chat bot tried to break up this guy's marriage. I mean, it was really incredible story. I was reading about that last night. It blew my mind. (laughs) I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying. I'd rather stick to food. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, I was asking it about you. I was curious what it was going to say. Oh, and what did it say? I don't have it right in front of me, but it was all very flattering. It was a very impressive bio, and it did mention time calling you one of the most influential people in, I think, science and medicine. I asked it what questions I should ask you, (laughs) and it it gave me like 10 really deep questions. My favorite, it said like, it said I should ask you Oh, by the way, I did a lot of prep, though. I have my own questions, but I was just curious. This is hilarious. (laughs) Let's see. It said I should ask you, what are some of the most promising areas of research in nutrition science today, and what new discoveries or insights do you find particularly exciting or impactful? I thought that was a good question. I think I'm going to like yours better. Okay. (laughs) They were all very, like, formulaic. (laughs) So, but in any case, (laughs) we're on tangents. Well, that's so, it's so interesting because that's the kind of question that somebody would ask who hasn't read my book. Exactly. Or is unfamiliar. And I I have to tell you, I'm so grateful to you for actually having read some of it. It's very unusual to talk to interviewers who've actually read the book. It makes for a much better interview, I think. I think. So I would say that chatbot didn't read the book. I can tell. I'm guessing not. Oh my goodness. That's so funny. Well, so in any case, so the first question I normally ask all the guests on this show is really going to be the topic of the whole show because it's, you know, tell me about your backstory and what led you to where we are today. So instead of that question, because I know we will dive all into that all throughout this episode, I think something I will start with is it's kind of a two-part question. I'm really curious when you sat down to write your memoir, Because you talk in your memoir about your book writing experience and what that's been like writing all of your other books. And I've written a book as well, but like nothing on the level of what you've done. But it was really exciting to read about your book writing process and how you, you know, approach that and how you, you know, never anticipated really going that route. And it never really occurred to you that you could like write a book. (laughs) But so in any case, writing the memoir, when you sat down to write that, did you immediately have the themes of your life like evident to you or did it really take some time to like think back and then those kind of came up going through that? And like, for example, like Michael Pollan called you the number two foodie in America, which is super cool. But reading your book, I don't really get this. I mean, are you a foodie? I don't really get the sense that you're, I wouldn't, do you identify as a foodie? Absolutely. I love food. (laughs) 
absolutely love it. And that's what motivated me right from the beginning was I just adored everything about food from growing it and especially eating it. And so I would absolutely self-identify as a foodie. I know a lot of people don't like the term, but I think it works. Okay, awesome. I guess what I was thinking about is like when I was reading everything about you and your relationship with food, here's how I'll step back from this. I love food. Like it's like my favorite thing as well. I'm all into whole foods. I adore it. People have called me a foodie, but I felt like I'm not really a foodie because when I think foodie, I think of people that go to these like restaurants and order really intense courses. I feel like it involves more of industry, I guess than just enjoying like natural, real, whole food? No, I I actually define it in the book because there was a foodie's handbook that came out, I don't know, really a long time ago. And I ran across a copy of it. It has a definition. A foodie is somebody who really, 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 really likes food. Then we are foodies. So when you did write the book, Like, did you anticipate the themes that were going to materialize with, like, everything that you experienced in your life? Absolutely not. I wrote the book because it was a pandemic project, and I was cut off. I usually write nonfiction books. I refer to this as my first book of fiction (laughs) um, because it's about memory. It's not about facts that you can research and look up. There are very few references in this book. Most of the books I write are, you know, extensively referenced nonfiction books about food or about food politics. And I couldn't do that because all the sources, the libraries were closed. My office was closed. The sources of all my materials, I couldn't, I didn't have access to. So I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. I have to look at this is an opportunity. I'm sequestered upstate New York with my partner who lives in Ithaca, New York. And I might as maybe this is a good time to deal with the questions that I get asked all the time. How did you get interested in food? Do you consider yourself a foodie? You know, what do you think are the most important research questions? I mean, all of those kinds of questions that I get asked all the time by students and reporters and people who interview me. They want to know how I got started, how I feel about what I do, and what I think its impact is. And those are not necessarily very easy questions to answer. And I had the time and I had the space to deal with it. And I sat down to, I don't know, I worked with my agent about getting a contract for it. It's published by University of California Press. It's my sixth book with them, with that press. And the it's an academic press, and this is the first memoir that they've done in their food series. So none of us knew how this was going to work out. And I started out in the middle. I did something I, I don't usually do with books. I started out in the middle. And I wrote one of the middle chapters because it was the one that I thought really needed the most explaining. And it was the chapter about when I was associate dean at the University of California, San Francisco. I had a really rough time during my 10 years there, in part because I had gotten the job as an accompanying spouse. And at the time, I didn't know I didn't really understand what a handicap that was and how I was going to be viewed as an accompanying spouse and not having an independent 
way of dealing with that university. And so I, I laid out what that was like, what it felt like, the kinds of problems that I had with it, some of the things, some of the incidents that occurred that in retrospect, seem very poignant and were certainly painful at the time. And then when I real when I finished the chapter, I realized I was writing a chapter about what it was like to be a woman in academia in what was then the 1970s and 80s. And that, of course, went back to my childhood and my growing up. I was, I came of age in the 1950s and, you know, things for women were really different then. Very, very different from what they are now. The expectation was that you didn't have ambitions because you were going to get married and have children. And that was what you were going to do. And if you were going to work, it was would be to support your husband's business. And you know, I tell the story about my three closest friends in high school had as their lifetime ambition to marry a professor, a doctor, and a rabbi, respectively. And they all did. That's what they did. And I didn't even have the confidence or the uh, the agency to be able to figure out what I wanted to do because I didn't think I had any options. And so a lot of what happened happened because I was trying to make the best of whatever situation I had gotten myself in, into. And so a lot of what I describe in the book is just the accident of persistence, that if you persist in working towards what you think is the right thing to do, sometimes you can make real progress and, and get somewhere. And the book is called Slow Cook because it took me a really, really, really long time to figure it all out. Wow. I love that. And this is a personal passion topic of mine. So I was thrilled to read about it in the book, everything that you just spoke about. Well, so for example, I'm in awe and shocked that you did everything that you did while, you know, raising a family, being a wife and a mother. Like for me personally, I've always felt haunted feeling like I couldn't have kids <laughs> and do my career. And that's now like in our, in our modern, modern life. So doing it when you did it is absolutely incredible. Like you talk about how when you got the NIH training grant fellowship, they literally told you that you only got it because no men applied. Is that correct? Yeah, when I went to graduate school in molecular biology, which I did because I had a crush on a professor who I had in a class I had taken as an undergraduate, and I thought he was just the most genius man I had ever seen. He was in the Department of Molecular Biology, and I thought if he was in that department, that was going to be the most intellectually exciting place I could possibly go without really thinking about whether I was going to like it or not or be good at it. And on and the graduate advisor on the for my intake interview said we're going to give you this fellowship because we've got this training grant for doctoral students, but you know, we don't usually give them to women. <laughs> and the uh, if men apply next year, I can't guarantee you that you're going to get this. 
Well, as it happened, men did apply next year, but the, I continued my training grant. I mean, I got good grades in classes. It was the one thing I really knew how to do when I was young. And I'm sure that that man, who I was friends with until he died in his mid-90s, would deny that he ever said that because he was actually a great champion of students. And once they got used to the idea that there were going to be women around, they kind of liked it. So it was, it was all right. But I, you know, I, it, what it did was it made me feel like, well, nobody is going to take me seriously. So, you know, maybe I, this isn't such a serious thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly did well enough in my graduate work so that I got my degree. Having two, you know, I had two small children while I was going to graduate school. That was challenging, to say the least. And I really don't know how I did it. I just did it day by day. And of course, it was much easier to find babysitters then, and a stipend of a couple of hundred dollars a month would pay for your babysitter, you know, which isn't possible now. So, I, I mean, in some ways, that strange era when it was really tough for women to do anything out of the home was in some ways easier than it is now, incredible as that seems. And what's also interesting is, so you clearly had this idea of being potentially disadvantaged as a female, but then you didn't even realize for a while just how much you were disadvantaged because you, like you talk about your swimming pool epiphany where you, you know, came, or I guess I can let you, can let you tell the story, but basically you realized that you were even a little bit farther behind than you thought as far as keeping up with everybody. Oh, it was, yeah, I call it the swimming pool epiphany because I was then a postdoctoral fellow in the biology department at Brandeis University. And Brandeis had a perk for faculty where they offered swimming lessons to children of faculty and graduate students and you know on Saturday morning and I, my kids were taking swimming lessons and one day there was a double lesson so they were going to be in the pool for two hours and I thought great I'll run to my lab and see if I can get some work done while my kids are in the pool and the great thing is there won't be anybody there because it's Saturday morning. There won't be anybody there. So I walk into my lab and everybody was there. And I mean everybody. The lab director, his wife, the lab technician, the doctoral students, the undergraduate helpers, the postdoctor, everybody in the lab was there except me. You know, I mean, people looked a little surprised when I walked in, but I instantly knew that this was why everybody was treating me as if I wasn't getting any work done. And I thought, this is why I'm not getting any work done. You know, and even if I had wanted to be there on a Saturday morning, there was no way in the world I could have done it. I didn't have babysitting options. I was having a hard enough time in, in the Boston area trying to get my kids taken care of during the day, during the week after school. I mean, they were in grammar school by then, but there was no, my, my husband at the time had his own lab career and we both agreed that his lab career was more important than mine. He was at Harvard and he had an assistant professorship. I was just a postdoc. 
So I, I was part of a system and I bought into that system. And that and my scientific career ended that day. That was the end. The reality was that there was no way in the world I could have a lab science career and have two kids at the same time. There may have been people who could do it, and I have subsequently met women who were able to manage very important lab careers with children. But they came from very different backgrounds than I did. They came from academic backgrounds where... You know, they had a lot of support, they had mentors, they had traveled a lot, they knew how the game was played. I mean, they were much, much, much more sophisticated about what an academic career was about than I was. And I just knew there was no way I could do it. That was the end. So I took teaching jobs from then on. Do you remember the, the immediate feeling you had when you walked in that room? It was a reality check. You know, it was you know, confronting me just straight in the face, you cannot do this. This cannot be done because everybody was there on Saturday. I couldn't do it. Everybody was there at night. I couldn't do that either. I had kids to take care of. And I was responsible for them. I was a second marriage. They were my kids. I was responsible for them. You know, either I was going to neglect my children terribly, which I didn't feel very good about doing, or I was going to do the best I can and take and take some other kind of job that didn't require those kinds of hours. And I, I had options. I had an offer of another postdoctoral fellowship with a lab director who later went on to win a Nobel Prize. So I was moving in pretty fancy scientific circles at the time, but I just couldn't do it. You know, and my husband at the time said, you don't want to work 22 hours a day. You know, I mean, he, he could work 22 hours a day, but I, I, I couldn't. No, that was the reality. So, you know, the, and it, it ended up okay. That's all I can say. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. If you grew up like now and had that same experience where it possibly was possible. Do you think you would have gone more of that clinical science route or do you think that wasn't your true, you know, calling or passion anyways? Well, I don't know. I mean, I had ideas about medical school, going to med. I mean, I had very good instincts. And, you know, I thought really what I should do is go to medical school, but when, you know, medical schools weren't taking women in those days, and it was a really big deal to do it. And again, I had two small children. How was I going to do all that? I couldn't do it. So that was one thought. The scientific route I, I tell the story in the book of meeting a woman with the Nobel Prize, actually not all that long ago, just, just before the pandemic hit. I was at a meeting in Chile and met this woman who has a Nobel Prize, and she was telling me about her life. We were comparing notes. We were on a small side trip. And she came from an academic family. She came from a family in which there was lots and lots of support for doing academics. She had lots of experience working in labs and working with people. When she had children, she had babysitters full time who could take care of her kids. She could go right back to the lab. And I'm, I'm not in any way minimizing the difficulties in her own life because she had plenty of them. But she came from a different class than I did. I came from a very poor family and just didn't even know these kinds of opportunities existed. And it really makes me understand when they talk about, you know, they talk about inequalities and the difficulty that people from poor backgrounds have. I have a lot of sympathy for that because that was my situation as well. I just didn't know what the options were let alone whether, whether I could do them or not, you know, which was another matter. And I didn't have in my life people saying, of course you can do that. <laughs> you know? or, why, or why don't you try it? If you fail, you fail, but at least try it. Or, you know, I mean, and I tell that story too when I was applying to colleges. Again, I had very good instincts, and I applied to lots of fancy private schools on the East Coast. I was in California at the time, and nobody said to me, nobody said to me, go ahead and apply. The worst thing that can happen is that you won't get in. If you do get in, you can figure out whether they're going to give you scholarships and you can pay for it or not, but at least give them the opportunity to offer it to you, which is the kind of thing that I would tell students now who are applying above what they thought, what their pay grade was. But I had nobody in my life who was encouraging in that way. 
So I ended up not applying. I did apply to Stanford, and I tell the story about what happened there. But it's, you know, it was just a different time. And I think if you come from a background in which the kinds of things that you want to do are acceptable and accepted and understood, and everybody knows how the game is played, it's an enormous advantage. I didn't have that. I don't think it can be underestimated. It's kind of like epigenetics and genetics, like, you know, the profound role of epigenetics on our life choices. Yeah, because growing up for me, I was... Well, family. Yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. Because I was always like really, really supported, which I do not take for granted. But the mentality was, you know, you can do anything. <laughs> I just think that's so, so key. I have a really random question about your your family because when you you talk in the beginning of the book about growing up, you said your dad owned a theater in Hollywood or ran a theater in Hollywood? Yeah, he ran a theater. A movie theater or a live theater? No, 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 no. A live theater it was the first one in Hollywood, and he was brought out to manage it. It didn't last it it didn't last long. Well, we're talking about the late nineteen forties here. This is so cool. <laughs> this was a long time ago. Yeah, he was brought out to run the first legitimate stage theater in Hollywood. And, you know, it turned out not to work out very well. And in any case, he died a year later. So, um, you know, whatever happened to it, I don't know what happened to it. It doesn't exist anymore. And I don't remember the details of it, except that I met I met Bob Hope at, uh, at, at, some, at some performance, but he had a tough life and he died at 47. He was a uh, a very heavy man. He was he was about five eight and weighed three hundred fifty pounds. Was a three pack a day smoker, and had what we would now say are multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease. Did that get me interested in nutrition and health? Undoubtedly, yes. And it's interesting because, not to make stereotypes, but when you you think of people in the arts or theater, you think of a more thinking outside of the box type of personality. I might assume that that type of family would be something more supportive of thinking outside of the box, but it sounds like it's much more, that's making a huge, you know, generalization. Yeah, it didn't work in my case. And in any case, my father wasn't around much because he and my mother didn't get along very well. So he dealt with it by just not being around. So, you know, families are complicated. Yeah, definitely. Another question about the, the issues that you did experience as a female. What happened, because you tell the story of, like the wage gap epiphany and realizing the differences in, in in the wages and how you chose to go about that and not going the court route and everything. I was just wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I was a lecturer at Brandeis. I was high after I after the swimming pool epiphany. I stayed on at Brandeis in a teaching position, and I had a title of lecturer. And I was teaching several courses a semester. And Brandeis hired a guy to do the same job that I was doing you know, teaching other courses, but he was at the same level I was. And he was somebody I knew, and I was really pretty excited about his coming. And one night I get a telephone call from a friend of mine who lived in Boston, and she said, guess what my consciousness-raising group discussed last night? Or tonight. And uh, I knew she was in a consciousness-raising group in Boston. These were groups in which women got together to talk about 
you know, how they were discriminated against and what to do about it. And so I had no idea what her group was talking about. And she said, we were discussing your salary at Brandeis. I said, how is this possible? How could you possibly be talking about my salary at Brandeis? And they said, well, the girlfriend of this guy who was just hired is in the group, and he's being paid a lot more than you're being paid. And he was told by your department chair not to talk about it. And she brought that issue to the group. And we all agree that you should be told. (laughs) So it was an astonishing difference. It was a third difference. I was being paid $8,000 a year and he was getting 12. So, or was it, yeah, it was something like that. So the next day I went to see him and asked him if it would be okay if I took it up with the department chair. And he, he agreed. He was a good guy. And I went to talk to the department chair about it and the department chair went ballistic it's a private university, salaries are secret, we don't discuss salaries, other people's salaries are none of your business, and besides, he and his girlfriend are planning to get married and have children, and he's going to need more money. I already have two children. Yes, but you're married. Ooh. Actually, I, I, was, I, I may have been married at the time, I can't remember, but anyway. So I just said... You know, I think this is a women's issue, and this is a big deal right now, and I just want you to know that I don't want to make a case of this. I don't want to take it to court. I don't want to take it to the Affirmative Action Committee. I don't want to do anything about it. I just want you to fix it. And uh, so I spent a year saying that over and over and over again, gradually being moved from one department chair to another, eventually to a low level, a low level dean, and then to a higher level dean, and then to a vice president. And finally, it took a year. And at the end of the year, they raised my salary and they raised it $500 a year more than the other guy's salary. So, so I ended up feeling, and, and part of it was, I was absolutely telling the truth. This was absolutely true. I did not want to make a case of it because I knew that people who fought departments or who fought their universities over matters like this lost jobs and never got other jobs. They were troublemakers. Nobody would ever hire them. And I absolutely didn't want anything like that to ever happen. So when I was saying that I didn't want to take it to court or didn't want to take it to the affirmative action committee, I knew I'd win because this was just the time when women were filing cases at universities and winning. They were winning. And I had an airtight case, airtight case, because we were doing exactly the same job except that I had been there a year longer than he had. So, and we had the same credentials, almost identical credentials. So I knew I would win. And I did eventually. I considered that a great achievement. But it sure took a long time. And it took a lot of patience. And that's so interesting. It's actually a common theme, not wanting to be the whistleblower. Because you experienced that when you were writing food politics, right? And you couldn't get anybody to go on the record about anything. 
with, from the government side of things? Right. You know, nobody wants to talk to you if you're writing about sensitive issues. And nobody wants to be in the position of telling on their boss or, or doing that kind of thing. It just doesn't go over well. You know, I mean, there are laws that protect whistleblowers, but they don't work very well. So it wasn't a position that I wanted to be in. And I came out of it pretty well. I mean, people thought I had handled it beautifully. So that was good. And then I had more money, which was also good. I needed it. Have you experienced anything else like that throughout your life where there's something whistleblowing nature for you? Were you um, wondering if you should talk about it or not? Well, I mean, I just, I just posted a blog post about the International Life Sciences Institute, which apparently has sent somebody to track the press reactions to my book, Unsavory Truth. And somebody, somebody I know was right, was going to discuss this in a book and sent me the excerpt and gave me permission to post it on my website. I mean, I think a lot of things have come up that I didn't know about. You know, I was, somebody once told me that they were hired to read all of my books. You should get paid for doing what you just did. They were hired to read all my books and then help, and then help the companies develop position papers to refute the arguments in my book. I thought that was kind of amazing, but it never occurred to me that people could get paid to read my books. That's Wow. Talking about such sensitive topics and especially talking about things, and we haven't even talked yet on this show about this, but you've done so much work surrounding information about government policy, like the food pyramid, the surgeon's general report that you worked on and dietary guidelines and things like that. Were you ever scared that people would like want to take you out. No, I mean, it's, it's odd. I mean, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but to my face, I've always been treated very respectfully by food companies. They invite me to talk to their executives. They invite me to meetings. You know, that it's always been extremely, if not friendly, at least cordial. And I think very respectful. So, you know, with the exception of things that happened right at the beginning when my book Food Politics came out and somebody organized a campaign to write really nasty reviews on Amazon of the book, um, you know, which is a story I tell in the new edition of Food Politics and tell and repeat it in the memoir. But besides that, there's really been very little. The Sugar Association once threatened a lawsuit. Could you tell listeners about that story? Oh, it's such a funny story. Such a funny story. When Food Politics came out, I was doing radio interviews. And I must have said on some radio interview that, you know, the first thing you should do if you want to lose weight is stop drinking sugar-sweetened sodas because sodas have sugar and water and nothing else of nutritional value. And the Sugar Association, which represents the growers of sugarcane and sugar beets, their lawyer wrote me a letter saying, you defamed sugar. You hurt sugar's feelings. And if you don't cease and desist, we're going to sue you because you, of all people, should know that soft drinks don't contain sugar. They contain high fructose corn syrup. 
Well, I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, I just couldn't stop laughing because high fructose corn syrup is sugar. It's, you know, it's glucose and fructose in solution, whereas table sugar, sucrose, is glucose and fructose stuck together, but very quickly separated. So, you know, if, you, if, you're, if, if you're physiologically, there's really no difference, but they're represented by two different trade associations. The Corn Refiners Association represents high fructose corn syrup, and the Sugar Association represents corn and beet producers. So it's, uh, you know, this got into politics. I thought it was hilarious. And I talked about it in every, I mean, I did write, I was warned by people that I needed to write very, very careful rebuttal letters to deal with every single point that was made in the Sugar Association's letter. And I did that. But I also talked about it in every talk I was giving in those days because I thought it was really funny. Um, you know, it's two different trade associations. It has nothing to do with science, really, but it's about politics. But that was the last time, and I re- I really haven't been, I haven't gotten those kind of threatening things ever s- since then. And I'm not. Uh, I was trolled for a while on my blog, particularly by pro people who really support genetically modified foods. They must have, there must have been an organized campaign to troll my website, and I had to stop taking comments on the blog as a result because it was so difficult to deal with that I just stopped comments. So that was too bad. Had to do it. But other than that, it's really been pretty quiet, and, and I don't hear about things unless people tell me. Gotcha. Wow. Well, you handled that really well. I would have been really stressed, <laughs> like with the, the lawsuit thing. You know, it's uh, it's politics. If you write a book called Food Politics, you've got to expect that you're going to get political pushback. And I do try not to take it personally. I had a lot of trouble with the trolling, I have to say, because the trolling was extremely personal. And the trolling commented on my age, my ethnicity, my, they organized, they tried to organize a campaign to get me fired at NYU. You know, I discussed it with my dean. My dean thought it was hilariously funny. You know, he had the same reaction. So, you know, all you can do, you have to laugh this stuff off and not take it personally. And to the extent that, I don't take it personally. Things go much better. That makes sense because it's one thing if people are just, quote, objectively attacking or debating the information you're providing. But when it does enter the personal realm, which I experienced that as well, like from, you know, because people say I'm like blonde and dumb and too thin and like all this stuff. And and it's, it's like, but it's like, how do you... How do you respond to that? Like, <laughs> so, and it must be really interesting for you, you know, having done this work for so long and way before social media. I mean, have you seen major changes? Like, what have you seen in changes in the industry as far as the role of social media? I guess with with that, and then also just 
like the experience of food with social media because it, there's the whole like food porn world and I'm sure industry uses social media to its advantage. Oh, absolutely. Advertising. I just saw I just saw something where Coca-Cola is going to be using chatbots to personalize nutrition messages on social media. And yeah, of course they're going to do that. And to the extent that they can personalize, things get much better for them. They sell more products and they hire all, they hire dietitians, they hire nutritionists, they hire kids, they do all kinds of things to try to generate interest in their brands. This is brand promotion. It's quite successful. It's something I've thought about for a long time. Oh, well, first of all, stepping back, just thinking about like the branding of a company and how influential that is on consumers. Like growing up, I was obsessed with Coca well, Coca-Cola just in general, the drink, but like Coca-Cola merchandise, like all the vintage, you know, like posters and signs. Like I had a Coke collection. And it's interesting thinking about that now. So that was me literally not even, you know consuming the Coke, which I was, but it was me taking this brand of Coke and just liking it as a brand (laughs) and like having a collection. They market very successfully, very successfully. Mm -hmm. It was intense. I've got a Barbie doll, if the truth be known. A Coca-Cola Barbie doll? Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. And I actually, I actually had like a moment in my life where because I did become really interested in health and wellness and concerned with the processed food industry. And I was like, what do I do with my Coke collection? <laughs> like, it's so sentimental to me, but I'm like, not, not a fan. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I have a whole collection of food toys. When I was writing about marketing to kids, I wanted to see what this was like. And, oh, they're just wonderful. I mean, anybody would want to have them. They're so cute. And so you can understand you can understand why if you're not thinking about it. And that was partly why I wrote Food Politics, because I wanted people to think about it. I'm a party pooper, I guess. But, you know, I thought in writing Food Politics, that, which is a, a book about how the food industry gets you to love brands, you know, and eat unthinkingly, even if the foods that they're pushing aren't very good for you, that one of the ways they do it is by inducing brand loyalty there, which they're very, very, very good at. Coca-Cola is an American icon, and the iconography is extensive. You can fill museums. In fact, there are museums devoted. Coca-Cola has its own in Atlanta. In Atlanta, my town. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, if you've never been to, I recommend it very highly. It's amazing. And so, you know, you have all these things. People adore them. M&M's has a, a multi-story store in Times Square in New York. It's packed with people. And it's not because they necessarily love M&M's. It's that the iconography is so cute. And they love the association with the brands, cereal brands, drink brands, whatever, without thinking. You're not supposed to think about it. You know, that's the, that's successful marketing. That's the hallmark of successful marketing is that you don't think about it. Yeah. And then when you do think about it, like if you just step back for a second, because I have thought about this before, and then you talk about it all throughout food politics, like the idea that Nestle and Coca-Cola and all these companies, Mars, 
will support all of these seeming studies and initiatives related to health and fitness. Like it's very confusing, but it has a purpose to it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, this is from my book, Unsavory Truth, which is about how the food industry funds research, amongst other things, but particularly funds research in its own interests. And the the whole area of funded research is fascinating because the recipients, the researchers who actually do the studies, absolutely believe that the funding has no influence on the way they're conducting the science. And yet there is this extraordinary body of research literature that says that it's enormously influential and that it's influential in ways that are not conscious. So this all occurs at an unconscious level. It's really interesting. And the, you know, the way that I was able to show that in a really casual way was I just started posting industry-funded studies on my blog site, foodpolitics.com, and I would post them five at a time. I did that for a year. Every time I had five industry-funded studies, I'd put them up on my post. At the end of the year, I had 168 studies that I had posted, and 156 of them had results that were favorable to the product in some way. Only 12 of them didn't. And, you know, that was not a very not a very scientifically performed study in any way because I didn't look for the enormous collection of all nutrition studies. I just looked at the ones I found or ran across. So it was what's called a convenient sample. And But in that sample, it was very clear that they get what they pay for most of the time. Not always, but most of the time they get what they pay for. And they get what they pay for, not because the scientists are bought. It doesn't work that way. It's much more subtle. It has to do with, well, I guess the easiest way to explain it is I get letters all the time from food trade associations saying, we've got $50,000 and we're looking for studies that will demonstrate the benefits of our product. Okay? So if you want that money, you're going to design a study to show benefits. (laughs) I mean, it's really that simple. And you'll conduct the study according to excellent scientific principles, but your study was designed to demonstrate something in advance. That's not real science. That's marketing science. Two questions to that. When you were looking at all of those studies, because it seems like there's like a few different ways that can materialize. Like one, it could be what you just said, where they rigorously design it to get the answer they intend, or they could get a different answer, but focus on certain, like in the conclusion, just focus on something, you know, specific rather than acknowledge (laughs) everything. Oh yeah. That happens all the time. And in fact, this, Tons of research on on this on industry funding, and that research shows that most of the bias that comes in comes in in the way the research question is designed. You know, you design a study to demonstrate benefit. That's a bias. And then the second place where the bias shows up is in the interpretation. So you get a study that actually doesn't show any difference 
between one thing and another, depending on what you're comparing, and you say, this product might improve health. You you put a positive spin on the on the interpretation. So that's the that happens all the time. I see studies like that all the time. Did you find that studies often weren't powered to actually make the claims that they concluded? You know, I never even bothered to get into that. I was really interested just in input and out and outcome. And I think you can get the you can picture the bias without having to get involved in whether in the level of statistical significance in whether in how the study was designed and all of that kind of thing. There are plenty of people who do that kind of analysis. I could do it too, but I didn't think it was necessary because because it was so it was so it was so obvious it was just so obvious that i just assume when i'm looking at these kinds of things that the study was conducted according to reasonable scientific principles i don't think you have to be a statistician although i could do that if i had to but it just didn't seem necessary in a lot of it there are other people who do that Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I think one aspect that my audience in particular would be really, really interested in, because I also host the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, so we're often talking about the the idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm well. You're talking to the wrong person because I'm not a breakfast eater. I turn out to be a natural intermittent faster without knowing that was what it was. I don't get hungry until around 11 in the morning, and I'm usually done eating by 7. So that's intermittent fasting, right? I mean, that's 11, that's 11 plus 5. It's 16 hours. And that's my normal way of doing things. I've done that forever and ever and ever. It's what I'm most comfortable doing. I think you should eat when you're hungry. Most of the evidence on breakfast being the most important meal of the day was funded by breakfast cereal companies. <laughs> if, you, if you go back and look at it, and the independently funded studies say it really doesn't matter. It's, what, it's the totality of what you eat over a period of time that, is, that matters, and one food or one pattern or whatever. I mean, lots and lots of people love to study this kind of thing. I don't think it's very interesting. It's the totality of what you eat that matters. Like I said, we get that question all the time. And so I have done like a deep dive into specifically the studies on breakfast and breakfast skipping. And 
it's shocking the amount of studies that are funded by the breakfast cereal industry. Well, yeah, because they want to sell breakfast cereal. And what better way? And, oh, you have to feel so sorry for the cereal companies because people are eating so many other things now. You know, it used to be everybody was eating breakfast cereals and, you know, it's been tough for them. I mean, the big dark secret of the American food supply is that we've got too much food by a factor of two. We probably have twice as much food available in the United States food supply as the population needs on average. And what that does is make for a very, very, very competitive food industry. They got to sell products in that, you know, in that environment, and they use every trick they can think of to get you to buy their product instead of somebody else's, or, and that's the real problem, eat more in general. I think food industry marketing imperatives are responsible for a great deal of why people eat more than they used to, for which there is an enormous amount of evidence. Do you talk about the role of, I don't remember if it was, it's probably unsavory truth. You talk about the role of like food claims and health claims and how they use those to sell things and how historically, like you collect cereal boxes or you can see that the trend, the themes on cereal boxes throughout the years about what health claims are being used to promote. Yeah, I have a very large collection of cereal boxes. They're flattened. The cereal still isn't in them. I was given facsimiles of three different Kellogg's breakfast cereals from the every single box from the time the cereal was started until 2010, which is when they were given to me. And I have not been very good about keeping up on it, but every now and then I keep up. And so you can trace the, the way health claims flourished. Now there are very, very few health claims on cereal boxes. They're much less they're much less fun than they used to be. I mean, there used to be big immunity banners on fruit loops and things like that. And they don't have that anymore. Now it's just vitamins and fiber, whole grains. Very boring. So the industry using these health claims and catching on the trends and what's popular to sell their products. Cause now there's like a move towards like gluten-free and organic and is that all just the same thing but with a healthy masquerade on top of it or do you think it's doing any good yeah no health sells and if you can give your product the aura of health then people will again you're not supposed to think about this you're real you're you're not supposed to go to a supermarket and play analyst. You're just supposed to grab. So if you see that something has vitamins, vitamins are an enormous, enormous, enormous sales technique. Everybody thinks they don't have enough vitamins, and everybody thinks that more vitamins is better, which it's not. Most people in America have plenty of vitamins. They don't need any more, but never mind. So if you advertise your product as having, you know, 100% daily value of whatever the vitamin is, if you advertise, protein is another big one, low sugar, gluten-free, no GMOs, that's a good one. Lots and lots and lots of products have no GMOs on them. I mean, these are things that signal to consumers that somebody who's making the product has at least thought about health or other kinds of concerns. 
and people buy them. And so, boy, if it says vitamins, I'll just get it, particularly if it's, if it's for kids. It's a sales technique. It's a way of distinguishing one product from another and just telling, signaling you, buy this, it's good for you. You don't have to have a guilty conscience. And speaking of vitamins and going back to your personal story, you had a epiphany moment about nutrition when you realized what actually was determining these you know, dietary recommendations with vitamins and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that? This blew my mind. I actually already talked about this. Once I read this, when we recorded an episode of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, I was talking about it, about the studies that you found that went into determining these guidelines. You mean the dietary guidelines? You went back and looked at the studies about what actually was supporting these recommendations for various vitamins, and it was conducted in like mental wards. Oh, no, that was actually when I was first teaching. When I was first teaching nutrition, this is what got me hooked on nutrition. This is, you remember, I came from basic science. And in my first class in nutrition, we're back to Brandeis University again, I wanted to start out with a scientific approach to nutrition. So I wanted to see what was required in the human diet. And the first thing I found out was that the textbooks of nutrition didn't agree on which nutrients were essential for human health, required for human health, that you had to get from food. So I thought it would be interesting to delve into what the research was behind that. And the first studies that I went to look at, the first one I went to look at was a study of the vitamin thymine, a B vitamin, and the study was conducted in a mental institution in the South on six young women who were incarcerated in that mental institution. And the assay that was used to determine whether they were vitamin deficient or not was their level of cooperation with chores around the hospital. I, I mean... I was kind of I was I was kind of stunned. You know, I was coming into this from basic science like you got to be kidding me. Because one of the symptoms of thymine deficiency is neurological and mental problems. So how are you distinguishing? I mean, these women are in a mental institution. What's going on here? And then the next one was even crazier because I, I picked vitamin C. And the first study I laid my hands on was a study that was done in a prison in one of the Midwestern states. And during the study in which they put these prisoners on a vitamin C deficient diet, two of the prisoners escaped. I thought, what? This is not a this is not a well controlled clinical trial. Are you are you kidding me? I couldn't believe that these studies were the basis of the recommended dietary allowances, which is the basis of the food recommendations that the dietary guidelines give out. So if you eat according to the dietary guidelines, you get all the nutrients you need. I just couldn't believe it. And the other thing I thought was Oh, what a great way to teach undergraduate biology. Because I had been teaching cell and molecular biology, which is very abstract. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You have to take it on faith. 
And here, every single undergraduate student could take one look at this study and see what was wrong with it. So I thought it was a terrific way to teach critical thinking in biology. And that's what I did. Since then, I'm assuming they've done a lot more like research to support the RDAs? Oh, yeah. The, you know, I mean, they do the best they can. And as I like to explain, nutrition research is extraordinarily intellectually challenging. It's really, really, really hard to do. And it's hard to do because people eat very complicated diets. And if you look at dietary intake carefully in one individual and between one individual and another, the variation is absolutely overwhelming. So the most challenging question in the field of nutrition is how do you tell what somebody's eating? You know, how do you define that? How do you compare it? Really, really, really difficult to do. And, and I don't think anybody should underestimate the difficulty. So it's very easy for me and anybody else to make fun of nutrition research. I think nutrition researchers try to do the best they can with what is almost an impossible situation. And it also explains why so much nutrition research is focused on single nutrients or single foods, because it's easier to control a study that has where you're just looking at one food. But it doesn't make any sense to look at one food. Or one nutrient. I mean, all these fights about carbohydrate versus fat, they don't make any sense at all. Because you're looking at one nutrient in diets of extraordinarily of extraordinary complexity. Yeah, it's easier to focus. And then like you talk about throughout your books, it also provides an easy health claim that they, they can then, you know, use to promote things with like the superfoods and blueberries. Oh, yeah. I mean, one, once you define foods, you reduce foods to nutrients. There's even a term for it. It's called nutritionism. It's when you focus on saturated fat, salt, and sugar, rather than the foods that convey those things. You know, then it's very easy for food companies to say, oh, you don't like us having this much sugar, we'll take a gram out. That's also another crazy thing. I can't tell you how many times, especially because there's the whole keto movement now. So there's all these keto products on the market. And just last night, it'll be like a keto product. It'll be like, it'll say like low sugar or low carb. And then the, it will literally have sugar on the back. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand. And then the one I was looking at last night, it said corn syrup was like one of the first ingredients and it had an asterisk. And then the asterisk said not a significant source of sugar or carb. Oh, let me tell. Oh, I've just found out about this. I mean, I don't know how I didn't know this. I was looking at a, I'm writing a book chapter about marketing to children. And I ran across this product that where the first three ingredients are corn syrup, condensed protein, milk protein, and sugar. Those are the first three ingredients. It's ghastly. And it said in this product that it had 240 calories, but it only had 15 grams of sugar. 
and there were I figured there were a hundred calories missing somewhere, and I couldn't figure it out. And you know, corn syrup, corn syrup is sugar. So I actually called the company, which is a Nestle company, no relation. And I talked to a nutritionist at Nestle who patiently explained to me that corn syrup is the product of enzymatic digestion of cornstarch into smaller pieces. And if those pieces are bigger than three glucose units stuck together, they count as carbohydrate, not sugar. Wow. And I, I can't believe, I cannot believe that I didn't know that. So I'm so glad you asked because I only found that out this week. So what this product said was that it had 41 grams of carbohydrate, which would have been 160 calories altogether, but it only had 15 grams of sugar, even though those little teeny pieces of carbohydrate would be quickly digested into glucose. So they could say that they only had 15 grams of sugar in this, you know, in 240 calories, when in fact, most of it was sugar. It just wasn't sugar very quickly. It had to be digested first, which wouldn't take very long. You do it in the mouth. So that why, so when you see corn syrup or glucose syrup, either one, those will have glucose, which is a sugar, plus little pieces that count as carbohydrate. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was so confused because... Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. 
And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Crazy. And because I was confused because like the product you were looking at, the product I was looking at, corn syrup was, I think, the first ingredient. And I was like, how can it be the first ingredient? When there's when there's hardly any sugar in it. When there when there's hardly any sugar in it. That's how, because it counts as carbohydrate, not sugar. So so I thought that was well worth knowing. It was I was very amused and I thought the Nestle nutritionist was really nice to tell me. And then I looked up corn syrup and thought and you know and and saw right away, of course. Of course. You know, these are the, these are little chains of glucose and they don't count as sugar because they're bigger than two. Are there any other ones like that you know of? Like loopholes? I think there are lots of them. I mean, this would, this, you know, I mean, always when you see the sugars split like that, so corn syrup, something else, and sugar, if they put all the sugars together, the sugar would always be the first ingredient by a lot. And so that happens a lot. They use different kinds of sugars. I guess the other one is these fruit purees. Fruit purees are not fruit. They, were, they may have been fruit at one time, but they're far beyond fruit. I mean, they're basically sugar, isolated from fruit. And so that's another way of getting a lot of sugar in without calling it sugar. I think also the rules around like the minimum amounts of things, how you don't have to list it or quantify it if it's below a certain amount. So then they'll like just adjust the serving size to make... They'll make it so that with the serving size, they can get these lower amounts of things and not really count them in the serving size. Yeah, I mean, the new serving sizes make that more difficult. The, the one They were changed a few years ago. It makes that more difficult. But, it, you know, I mean, the food companies hire people to try to make their products look good. On food, on food labels, and most people don't read food labels very carefully, don't understand them. There's a very good reason why they don't understand them. They're not very easy to understand. And the, you know, the way I like to explain it is that when the food label was being, the Nutrition Facts panel was being designed, the FDA did focus group testing on several different designs, and nobody understood any of them. And so they picked the one that was least poorly understood. <laughs> but nobody understood any of them. I mean, they're really hard to understand. You have to know a lot to understand the food label. Most people just look at calories and sugar, which isn't a bad place to start. 
I'm really surprised or impressed that that Nestle woman told you that whole thing because I remember one time, because I do read food labels like very intensely. I emailed a company one time. They made, it was a horseradish sauce and it had natural flavor in it. I emailed them twice from two different emails and asked them what was the natural flavor. And I got two completely different answers. I was like, okay, they have no idea what's in that. No, I mean, you can look at what the FDA allows. I mean, I, I always start with the, with what the FDA allows on food labels. And natural flavor has a very specific meaning. It's just that you think of natural flavor as something that comes from a food or a, you know, a fruit or vegetable or whatever. And it does originally, but it's mixed in with so many other things. All of them originally from fruits or vegetables that they're very complicated, natural flavors. They're very, very complicated. I mean, that to me is why, even though there are 20 different varieties of fizzy drinks, you know, these fizzy waters that everybody is making now, 20 different fruit flavors, they all taste the same to me. You know, they have fruit flavors in them, even though they're listed as different fruits. They're all, it's this natural flavor stuff. I think it smooths things out and makes everything taste, everything tastes like bubble gum. It's so funny. When, like they say, everything tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like bubble gum. Exactly. These fl- flavors all taste like bubble gum. Something I've been fascinated by as far as like labels and regulations, I'm really fascinated that the FDA actually did ban trans fats. They didn't ban. They just said that they had to be listed on the food label. Oh, I thought they had to be, I thought they were banned and they had to be removed. Mm-mm. They just listed, they have to be listed on the food label. Because they are demonstrably not good for health, nobody would want them on their food label. Because then you could then you could be sued for putting in a demonstrably unsafe ingredient. The FDA didn't have to do anything, just except say you have to label it. And the companies, they disappeared instantly. They had plenty of warning. That was coming for years. Yeah, no, I mean, the FDA is the FDA is kind of limited in what it can do, but there are some things it can do. And that was, an, that was an obvious one. If you had unlimited resources and you could actually create any study, what would you study? Like a clinical study. A clinical study? I think we know a lot about nutrition. And, and I, I can't think of any really big picture... Big picture questions. I mean, the big one right now, the really big one is why do ultra processed foods make people eat more? That is the really big question right now. And it's being studied at NIH in under very well controlled conditions. And I think eventually they'll find out. But that's the really important, I mean, that's the most important advance in nutrition that I can think of in decades, is the the concept of ultra-processed foods and the study at NIH that demonstrated that people who eat diets based on ultra-processed foods eat more, 500 calories a day more on average than they do when they're eating foods that are less processed. And 
that's you know just an, an enormous finding with a very obvious corollary about what to do. Don't eat ultra-processed foods. Figure out what they are and don't eat them, or at least don't eat very much of them. And these are foods that are industrially produced, don't look anything like the foods from which they were derived, can't be made in home kitchens because you don't have the equipment or the ingredients. And the easiest example is corn on the cob is unprocessed, canned corn is lightly processed, Doritos are ultra-processed. They don't look anything like corn. You know, once you, once you sort of get that idea and you know that the food companies that make these foods have designed them deliberately to be irresistible, you can't eat just one, then if you want to protect yourself from overeating, you avoid those foods or you make sure they come in small packages or you do whatever, whatever. What you don't do is sit yourself down in front of a big bag of them. Yeah. Do you know Mark Schatzker? He wrote The Dorito Effect. Mm-hmm. I know the book. Okay. Yeah. He has, in his new book, The End of Craving, I don't know if you've read his newest book. I haven't seen that. Oh, oh. It's been one of my most popular episodes and it blew my mind. <laughs> He's amazing. I actually just got him to sign. He wrote a book called Steak too. And I so I got him to sign a copy for one of my friends. He has a theory that the processed food issue, and he talks all about the natural flavors and all of that, but he thinks a large part of it is due to the fortification and that actually the vitamins, the added vitamins make us overeat. And he has studies that support it. It's fascinating. I would guess that something else is involved. Vitamins don't taste good. If you've got vitamin fortified something, you've got to do something else to cover that up. You have to cover it up with sugar. You have to cover it up with flavor additives of one kind or another. They really, you know, put a vitamin pill in a glass of water, dissolve it and try to drink it. Oh, doesn't taste good. So, I mean, he could be right that fortification has a a big effect. If you want extra vitamins, take a one a day supplement. I, you know, they're harmless. I don't think everything needs to be formulated, but it sure sells food products. Well, he talks about like, I mean, it's a lot of like animal studies, but how adding vitamins to like livestock feed makes them gain weight. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And then he also talks about this is mind blowing. They've done studies where beverages that were like a certain sweetness through artificial sweeteners, but they were different calorie numbers. So they would like give participants different drinks that were either calorie matched. So they tasted like the amount of calories that were in them sweetness wise, or they were like less calories or they were more calories. And what was crazy is when the participants drank drinks that had less calories than it tasted like. So they were basically more artificially sweetened. Their metabolism just stopped. Basically the response they got confused. Yeah, yeah. So the theory is like we're having these low calorie processed foods that are using artificial sweeteners, but then our body is like, whoa. Like and it gets confused. And so it goes into like storage mode because it enters a like an uncertainty principle. It's really cool. I was like, I had never heard that before. Well that's interesting. There's more and more evidence coming out that artificial sweeteners are probably not good for you. I mean we'll have to see how that goes. 
Well, this has been absolutely amazing. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, the students I teach. I mean, one of the things that's wonderful about being a university professor is you got to you get to deal with young people, and the ones I deal with are interested in food. They want to use food to change the world for the better, and I just think it's such a privilege to get to cheer them on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marion, for your work. This has been absolutely incredible. I I'm just so grateful for everything that you're doing. Like you're literally changing the world and your books have done that. So I look forward to all of your future books. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. This was really a fun conversation and I'm so glad we got to do it. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, what when wine lose weight and feel great with paleo style meals intermittent fasting and wine as well as my blog melanieavalon.com feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com and always remember you got this